You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. We, I, I'm, I'm going to assume for some of us in this room, uh, you're committed, you've been here for a while, but probably there's some of us in the room that you are either new to town or kind of with the school calendar, you're just trying to find some different change in your life and maybe finding a church community is part of that. So maybe you're either here new or you're kind of checking out different church communities in the city. We're glad you're here if you're new to Baltimore. Um, so this series that we're doing right now, we're, we're explaining kind of who we are. And as we look at our vision and our mission, uh, the vision of a church is essentially what's the big picture? Where do we see ourselves hopefully ideally moving towards and where where Ideally, where would we want to be? And for us at the village, we exist to lead people into reconciliation with God and with one another. And what that means is our church, the, the big picture, why we do what we do. Why do we call you to serve and to sacrifice? Why did we start this whole thing? Ultimately, it's that we want to see people made right with God, have lives transformed, and in that, we are also made right with one another. And, and I'm not that smart, but if I just take a quick look around our country right now, I think that's kind of a real need as people become more and more fractured. What would it look like for the people of God, as we're made right with God, we also extend fully the, the power that God gives us to be made right with one another. And, and that's, as a church, driving who we are and what we do. And, and our mission, the mission is how do we see ourselves taking steps to accomplish that? For us, it's through transforming lives and transforming communities. And, and transforming lives means, again, as we're reconciled to God, as our life is being healed and, and challenged and molded and made into all we're meant to be, and we build a church, we're seeing lives transformed. But what it also means, when we say transforming communities, we're not just talking here. For us, transforming communities is we got a much bigger picture of the city around us and even beyond. That, that you here, so part of, part of what you might notice is God is growing a little bit of a diverse community, and I feel we have a lot of steps to go, but it's exciting, but it's not just to be it's kind of kumbaya, politically correct. Uh, yeah. it, it's for the goal of seeing, wow, look how many communities are represented in this room, just because of different things that make you who you are, that might even be different from other folks here. We see that as a tremendous opportunity where God is gathering us together to, to release us throughout the city. And some of you, you might go into be, going to be with people that no one else here would. We think that's incredible. And that, that what we do here then is we come here, we have our lives transformed in Christ so that we can send you back out to those places to love people, to serve people. And, and that's our mission. It's going to look different for all of us, but it excites us. So this series that we're doing here, we began last Sunday and we're, we're con- continuing today, called DNA. Um, DNA, essentially, we're looking at our values. So as we consider who we are in our vision and our mission, our values kind of define then what are some of the, some of the specifics of, that make up the village. And every church that follows Jesus, hopefully there's some common things, but we also would say there's some specific things in churches. That's what we're talking about here. Um, and today, we're looking at this idea of gracious truth. Uh, one of these six values for us, gracious truth. Um, and, and I think we live in a culture now where it's, re- it's really interesting. Like, if you believe in something enough, it's kind of true. Even if it might not really be, but it's like this high value. As long as you really feel passionate about something, it's true. Like, you don't need evidence. You don't need backing. You don't need any kind of 
But if you really believe it, hey, it's true to you. Um, I mean, it's somehow almost wrong to, d- to doubt, like, the veracity of someone who believes something really true, right? Even if you look at it, they're like, yo, the earth is flat. Um, I, I don't think so. No, my-, my soul says the earth is flat, and you cannot tell me I'm wrong. Okay. I mean, it's, it's like impolite almost to suggest that if someone really believes something passionately, it might be the whole idea, like, you do what works for you. Right? That might be the most common response I get when I talk to people about Jesus. Hey, man, that's awesome for you and your people. You do what works for you. I'm going to do what works for me, and we'll all hold hands in the end. Um, I don't know. I don't know. And the thing, though, is as I think about the church, as I think about what we do here and in other places, I think this kind of mentality can easily creep into even what we do as a church that we start to see how the culture thinks about truth. Like, truth is what you make of it. We can easily bring bring that into the church as well. Um, And it's like we all have our definition of truth then. We all can believe, as long as we really believe it, as long as we feel God has convicted us, somehow it must be right. Um, It's really awkward for me sometimes because, you know, in the midst of conversations or counseling, uh, I have this, hopefully this hasn't happened too much with you guys, but, um, like, someone will come to me and say, God told me this. And like, like usually it's something that they should do. And, and I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, man, I don't know where that came from because I can't see where God would tell anyone to do that. But heck, you told, you told me God told you. So it's like a weird position because if I say, I don't know if that's true. I'm like doubting the truth that they really believe. But it's this weird kind of awkward thing that we can bring that in even into the church. I, w- I want to clarify I do believe there are some things that we can hold in opposition, that we can believe very differently from one another, and, and those things could still be true. I, I mean, I think that's just reality. Um, some of you might believe, man, animals are like the tastiest gift ever from God. And some of you are like, you murderer, killing those poor little animals for your own selfish belly. Maybe both of those could be true in a weird, weird, weird way. But, like, we can still be friends, and we can love one another. We, we might not b- agree with the other, but I think even in, in Christian cir- circles, uh, probably one of the best examples for us as a church is, again, we believe in baptism uh, for believers. We believe baptism is something uh, for those who've confessed faith in Christ. So usually at a later age, I have many friends who are uh, devout Christians who their belief is baptism also can be done for a baby, for an infant, and that's baptism. Um, both of us would agree on different things, probably like really opposed to one another in some sense, but we, I would never say that they're not, like they're led by the scriptures, they love God, they're following as obediently as kids, and in the end we give each other a big hug because we know that we love Jesus and we're in the same family, but we can believe differently about those things. But, but I think the challenge with that is um, when this kind of approach to truth, like, well, all truth is, is, is valid in its own, as long as you really believe in it. Um, I think if we apply it to certain aspects of the Christian faith that are, I would say are essential as we study scriptures, that's when it gets a little murky. That's when it gets a little challenging. So like um, a, a doctrine like salvation, we believe. We believe life eternally and in this earth as well, but eternally is found in Jesus Christ alone. Um, that's one of those things we believe are like core tenets of the faith, and there's not really room to say, well, yeah, there's other ways. 
Kind of like God can give you a GPS and you get off course, but he'll bring you back through another way. I, I don't know. I think as the scriptures would teach, um, salvation is found through the work and person of Jesus alone. And that's why we're so adamant about letting people know about the love of Jesus. We live in a culture where it's audacious for a church to say that uh, truth is essential when it comes to knowing God as he's truly meant to be known, as a church like ours might say. Some might say it's unloving. Some might say it's intolerant. But I think this aspect of truth has to really be kind of gripped on. we got to wrestle with it. we got to chew on it a little bit. And it, it leads into our first point that I want to hit quickly here, this idea that truth is revealed through the word of God. That the village, when we talk about this idea of truth, we ultimately believe truth is revealed through the word of God. Um, and I want to be really clear here. I believe God can speak in many different ways. Um, I believe God can speak through some dreams. Sometimes it's just bad pizza you had the night before, but other times I think God can speak through some dreams. I, can, I believe God can speak through different mediums, uh, maybe different artistic mediums. Um, I believe perhaps God can speak through certain visions that people might have, certain... Um, I, I even believe, man, for some of us, maybe the most spiritual experience you've had this year is like TV shows like, like This Is Us. You're like, I haven't cried that much in my life. God's got to be in the middle of that. I'm learning so much about Jesus through that. I'm like, okay, okay, cool. I mean, yeah, God, God's truth is present. And, I mean, you can learn about God there. Um, so we're not saying you cannot learn about God and know who he is through, through different things. But what we would say at, at our church, we hold to this idea. Ultimately, we place our authority in how we believe who God is as revealed through the Bible. Like for us, that needs to be kind of like the ultimate place where we bring everything else. Even if other things might be very true, we always bring it according. So what does the Bible say about that? How does the Bible speak into that? Because if anything, as much as it might make you feel really good and feel really true, you, you, we got to bring it and say, well, what does the Bible say about that as well? And wrestle with those things. And, and there's different scriptures that talk about the word of God. Um, just a few here. Hebrews 4.12. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I love this image of the, the word of God, like this, this um, real sharp weapon that really cuts through, cuts through some of the like confusion and really gets to the part. But that last part of that verse really convicted me personally, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What it's saying is that the Bible, the power of the word of God has it to go into our deeper motives, our deeper intentions. And another one of those conversations I have with people sometimes, especially if we're talking about things that need to be challenged a bit, like it's that response, well, God knows my heart. God knows my heart. I'm like, I hope not. I mean, he does, but I hope that's not what you're standing on here because I know my heart. I don't want God to like base me on all those things because I'm evil at times. I've got some jacked up motives. I've got some jacked up intentions. And I am so evil that I can easily justify the things I do by putting God at the end of it. I can take things I really want in my flesh and say, um, well, I really want this, so it must be of God. It's got to be God. This is of God. I know I've done this in the past, and maybe some of you can identify with me. I've had some rocky relations in the past, and there have been some ladies in the past where I have known that God told me, you are to marry them. Like, I heard it somewhere. I guess looking back now, it's not God, but I heard it somewhere. 
deep within my soul, oh, that, she's the one. You know, for some of you old school cats, like Peter Cetera songs are playing. And like you hear, you know, some of you don't even know who that is, right? Some of you old folks, you're walking with me. But you hear that, you're like, oh, and you're feeling different things in your gut. There's a tingling going on. This must be love. This must be my eternity. I'm supposed to walk with this person. And obviously the present Mrs. Yun would disagree. Because <laughs> they're not Mrs. Yun. I got a Mrs. Yun now. Yeah, praise God. But you should have heard me talking because I easily justified it as God's will. I use language like God is telling me. And we got to be really careful because we've got to be honest with our, and that's what the word of God does because sometimes we take what we feel we really believe and we bring the word of God to allow him to speak into those things. Say, oh, is that really what I'm saying? Is that really what I'm saying? Was that what you really want? And you're kind of doing a Jesus juke to try to try to justify those things. Let's just be honest, right? The Word of God provides a mirror to our soul. And it, it requires humility for us to say, I don't really know everything. Like, we shouldn't give ourselves too much credit. And, and be, be mindful. I'm not saying that we should not trust sometimes the Holy Spirit's real uh, prompting within us. Like, I'm not saying we should live in fear and to, like, second-guess every decision you ever make. Say, oh, am I really following Jesus or not? I better fast for two weeks on this whether I can eat breakfast today or not. That's not what I'm saying. Trust God in different ways, but also have some awareness to realize it requires humility. It requires humility to say, I need God to speak into my life, and the way God speaks is through his word. Another a famous passage about the Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, starting 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Simply, God has given us his word as the primary means to equip us, to train us, to raise us up for the way we are to be. That's why we place a high premium, premium on the Bible, teaching it during our, our Sunday gatherings, our, our community groups, in other ways. We want the Bible to be that authority that helps us to train ourselves and others. Psalm 119, 105, one of my favorite verses in the scriptures, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Man, someone should write a song about that. That's beautiful, right? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Simply the idea that God gives us guidance. He doesn't just throw you out there to try to figure out things on your own. He gives you this amazing person of God called the Holy Spirit. And through the word of God, he provides guidance. Yes, some of it's murky in front of you. You're not going to know every step. Sometimes some of you that paralyzes you because you're like, I don't know where to go. But we go to the word of God and provides us illumination on the direction that we go trusting that God is good and that he'll protect us from some things that are bad for us. He'll give us faith to take some steps in some things that we're afraid of taking, but that God provides us guidance. And I want you guys to know this, even as we talk about our church, you know, even in our approach to preaching, and as I, I work with some of our preachers, and obviously for myself, constantly we, we come back to this idea, yo, we can talk a good game. We can preach good. We can be good public speakers. Yo, TED, TED Talks might call you up because we can articulate words, but ultimately... Does our sermon come from the word of God? Is it God's word that's guiding what we teach here? Because let's not just be slick talkers up on stage. Let's say, what does the Bible say about those things? And we need to be guided in these principles. So we, we, we desire to place a high premium as we talk about truth upon the Bible. 
Amen. I know it's my gig, so I'm supposed to be passionate, but I can't help it. I mean, the Bible is amazing when you think about it. If you haven't studied it more, I would encourage you to do this because God's given us these 66 books which make up this bigger book that we call the Bible. These 66 books, which are 39 found in the Old Testament before Jesus and 27 books that comprise the New Testament that talk about the coming of Jesus and the mission of the church following. It's written in three, uh, three languages, two primary ones, Hebrew and Greek, and then some Aramaic thrown in there. And the, these books, amazingly, were written over a span of over a thousand years across three different uh, continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, with a lot of different voices speaking in. I mean, the authors of the books that comprise our Bible are made of, of people from the upper rungs of society, like kings, and you had peasants, you had fishermen, you had poets, you had scholars, you had statesmen, you had philosophers, you had people from all walks of life. And, and just the genre of this Bible, what it contains is, uh, it has history, it has uh, sermons, it has a love letter. I mean, it's got a love letter, right? It, it's, got, it's got letters, it's got a hymnal, it's got a songbook in the midst of it. It's just a beautiful collection. There are geographical studies. There are uh, architectural dimensions and specifications of how to build. Some of you, like Home Depot types, you love it when you do your quiet time and you're just reading about cubits and measurements. Those are the parts I really pray for the Holy Spirit to get me through quickly. There's like travel diaries. There's family listings and trees and a lot of legal stuff. I mean, it, it really, the Bible covers so many controversial subjects with amazing unity. Even though it's written by all of these different authors and all these books and voices and continents, there's amazing unity in the one common message from this Bible. I mean, it's the best-selling book of all time, and, and I think it's now available in over 3,000 languages. This one book. And the Bible, as, as we look at, it's essential, it's infallible, it's inspired. It's God's record of self-disclosure to humanity. If God wanted to let the world know who he is, people all the time, I wish God would tell us who he is. He has. It's called the Bible. This is God's way to let us know who he is. It's our guide to knowing the truth of knowing this triune God. We, we, I, I love the Bible. But I think, I think honesty requires us to recognize that even though we affirm these things about Scripture, um, some of the ways that the Word has been utilized hasn't always been very helpful to communicate truth. I mean, throughout history, but even, even up to today, I think it would be intellectually honest to say, we love the Word of God, but man, sometimes the way that the Word of God has been used has not always been that helpful, particularly for helping people to know more about Jesus. Sometimes the Word of God has been, is used as a weapon and I guess some, some homies take really literally when it says, like, sword of the spirit. And they're like, okay, I got my sword. I got my weapon. Let's go off fighting. And I used to remember there was a, at the college I went to, they, they used to have these, a specific area of campus where they had these preachers, street preachers. And I got nothing against street preaching. I think it's actually a powerful medium if done well. Uh, but these cats, they, they were going at it, right? They would, like, yell at students as they walked by. They would yell at them and how immoral they were and how they've been living apart from God, living in sin. They're not truly of faith, all these different, and different, different dudes would just throw out. And man, I remember one of the most painful things for me, even though I wasn't really walking with God at the time, I felt some guilt because I, I think I'm kind of associated with that a little bit, is that they would hold the Bible off and like this, every time they would say, sinner, it's like a sword, it's like parrying, right? 
like doing sword like use it almost as that weapon and I'm cringing at this at this image of the beautiful word of God that does cut into our soul but but being used as sort of an antagonistic way to prod and to poke and and to yell at people it's often used as a weapon I think in other ways sometimes I think in response um, some, sometimes the way we look at the Word of God in response to, I think, theological liberalism, which says, you know, ultimately this is not really God's Word. It's just some people who put some stuff together and there's no way we can justify This is not really God. This is a man who's determined and trying to manipulate an opiate of the masses and all those different things, right? Kind of, it's helpful. There's some smart stuff, but it's not really God's Word. I think in response to that, um, sometimes what people, well-meaning people have done is taken the Bible and turned it into kind of like a rational mathematical equation. Like because people have said, if you truly believe in science, there's no way you can believe the gobbledygook that's in that thing. You mental moron. There's no way you can be intellectual and believe in this thing. So in response to that, well-meaning people said, no, you can. So here are the seven steps to knowing God. As you, and, you know, trying to make it into a mathematical formula how you study the Bible. As if it's scientific. Almost like you plug in these different six aspects, poop, you'll get this result. And guys, I mean, I hate to disappoint you, but that's not how the Bible works. It's mysterious. It's not very logical. Sometimes you do exactly what you think you should be doing, and it doesn't end you up in a place where you think you should. That's why I'm really careful about saying, here are the three steps towards God. I'm like, I can't guarantee that. I can guarantee that God will be faithful to you. I can guarantee he won't let you go. I can guarantee he'll walk with you. You can trust him. He'll forgive your sins. But I can't guarantee a mathematical equation in the way we view the word of God. So I want to suggest another way that we might consider God's revelation of truth. Look with me at John chapter 1. And Medley read for us. I want to read for a guess from verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And as, as Pastor Larry explained to the children really well earlier, that was, that was good. This idea of the word, we're talking about Jesus here. That it's talking about Jesus, and it actually helps if you look back in the beginning of chapter, we don't have it up here, but it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is one of the key passages, if you're having conversations with people who say, Jesus never claimed to be God before, this is one of those key ones that says, no, actually, there, there is. There's scriptural documentation here. Jesus was God, and in that, he was the Word. And I want, to, I want to specifically look at this one verse in verse 17 there, where it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's saying that God revealed himself through Christ into our world. He revealed himself in this form of this understanding of the word. Well, Jesus was the word. And in verse 17, you have this law was given through Moses. And we think about all the different law that Moses gave um, in, in, in writings from God, all of these different um, commandments and things. And probably the most famous one is the Ten Commandments. And I know some of you, maybe you hold really dearly to the Ten Commandments. I do too. It's scripture, 
But what I also see is some people using the Ten Commandments as the primary means by which someone is supposed to be transformed. So they'll take the Ten Commandments and say, hey, here's the Word of God. Here's the, com here's the Ten Commandments. Here's the law. You need to obey this to be a Christian. That's what a Christian is, someone who obeys the law of God. But what we see here is that, yes, the law was given through Moses, but ultimately Jesus Christ is saying he's the fulfillment. He's the completion. Grace and truth came through Jesus. So with the Ten Commandments, for instance, yes, it's there and we still fully hold it. But what we see in Jesus is he's the one who allows us to fully understand the Ten Commandments. He's the one who allows us to fully understand how do we live these things out and we actually fall short. That's why we needed a Savior. That's who Jesus is, and that's what he does. And simply, the idea I want to put before you guys here as we think about truth is that ultimately truth is not a statement. It is a person. Truth is not a statement. It is a person. I don't think it, it, I'm not saying it can't be a statement. A statement can have truth facts. But what I'm more addressing is this idea that ultimately for Christians, our truth is based upon a series of statements we make. Or a, or a series of words that we put together. Ultimately, that defines our truth. It might explain it, but for the Christian, as we look at the revelation of God, we have the word of God. We love the word of God, but the goal is it points to the truth who we say is a person, Jesus. That the truth is not just a series of statements that we would affirm. The truth is found in a person, Jesus Christ, who lived out what it meant to know God fully. And Jesus talked about this even as he rebuked some people, some, some key religious leaders. John chapter 5, verse 39. It says, you search the scriptures. These are people that know their, know their uh, scriptures, right? They're people who diligently study. And he's saying, yo, you search the scriptures, but you think that in them you have eternal life. So what he's saying is, yo, you guys are pouring over. You've made your whole life learning these things. You've memorized it all. You, you know it backwards and forwards. You know, these are people who we would make teachers because they know the Bible. They know the word of God. And he's saying to them, you, you search them because you think by knowing the word, you will have eternal life. But he goes on, what do he say? It is they that bear witness about me. He's saying, guys, you're looking in the right place but you're looking for the wrong answer because you're looking in the right place, but the right solution is that they're all talking about me. So all the scriptures that you love here, all of the prophecies, all of the commandments, all of the different edicts, all of those things, it's beautiful. It's the word of God, but it's ultimately pointing to me. That's what he's saying here. And, and he gives them these words, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's saying, following the law in itself, following the truth in itself, that won't lead to life. But what it does, it points to me who has life. Y'all looking for life, you're, you're looking in the right place, but you're not seeing ultimately where it's pointing to. That's me. That's what he's saying here. Here's why this is all important for us here at our church, now, particularly as we define our community here at the village. I believe, and I think I've seen this, and maybe some of us would, would uh, attest to this, I believe someone can know all the truth as described in the Bible. I believe you can know every word, Every dot, every iota, every, every like phrase, you can know this backwards, forwards, in other languages, you can have memorized it, and yet still not really get who Jesus is. You can know this book well. You could teach it. But you can still miss knowing who Jesus is. 
And that's why it's so important for me as we talk about our values here. Guys, we need to know the Bible because we do believe it speaks truth. But it's pointing to the truth. It's pointing to Christ. Because if we reduce truth merely to a set of things that we know, we can easily miss the transformational effect it's supposed to have on us. Because I have met, sadly, plenty of people who know their Bible inside and out who are devoid of God's grace in their lives. Both for themselves, but for other people. Have you ever encountered people like they know the Bible so well, but they're just miserable to be around? Like they know it and they can explain it, but there's something missing about being like Jesus in the midst of it. Guys, we are not meant to worship the Bible. And I don't know how applicable that is in our room here, but I think there's some threads of Christian faith. Sometimes we almost worship the Bible, we're meant to worship God. The ultimate goal is not just to worship this book, but the book is a resource and a tool so that we might know the God that it speaks of. The Bible is God's primary way of letting us know how we might worship God. So the point of studying your Bible, it's not merely to know your Bible better. I know some of us just like information. We like doing Bible study because we like learning more. That's good. That's part of it. But guys, that can't be the main primary end goal. The, the point of studying your Bible is not merely to know your Bible better, but it's to lead you to the truth that's found in Jesus. That's why we study the Bible. And that leads us to this last point I want to put before us here, that truth flourishes in the soil of relationships. Truth flourishes in the soil of relationships. So... Again, I don't think it's anyone here, um, but sometimes I'll run across them having conversations, and I talk about the importance of church, and, and, and the dudes will come back and say, yo, that's great, and I, th- I know you need that because you're probably weaker in your spirituality, so you need other people to help walk with you, but all I need is my Bible. All I need is my Bible, and, and I'm good, because, you know, sola Bibles and, you know, whatever, right? All I need is my Bible. I don't need anyone else. I am good, and I can fully know God. Uh, But I'm going to suggest, unless you are on a deserted island by yourself, uh, I'm going to challenge that a bit. So, okay, if you're on an island by yourself, all you got your Bible, praise God. Christ is all you need, right? And go find a friend in a coconut or something, right? Um, And I also want to say, it doesn't mean that we don't need to learn how to walk in private times of solitude. I'm not saying that. We need to learn how to walk on our own with the Word of God. But if that's all that it is in our life, I'm going to suggest that we're cutting off a primary means by which God has given the truth to impact us. If it's just you and your Bible alone, I would suggest that we're cutting off what was not meant to be cut off, which is learning the truth of God, which flourishes in the context of relationships. Because this is more than just propositional ideas. It's meant to be fleshed out with real people of flesh and blood. It's the powerful imagery that we saw back in John 1, uh, that idea that the Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. What did Jesus do to transform us? He didn't say, y'all, human humanity, look up in the sky. I'm going to write to you all the ways that you can be transformed, that you can know eternal life. And it's me, Jesus. No, right? My, take his big Jesus cloud pen and just write up everything we're supposed to do. What did he do? How did he transform? He didn't just talk to us from far. He came into our world. He entered our muck and mire. He entered the pain 
pain and the brokenness and the humiliation of being a human being at times. He knows what it means to be scarred. He knows what it means to be spoken ill of. He knows what it means to have people look at what you're saying and just discredit you. He knows all those things because he walked with us and he walked into our world and he chose a bunch of losers who he knew he would mess up. And he knew the frailty of humanity. How does he transform us? Not from afar, by throwing us like a big, big, long lifeline, but by getting in there, wrapping his arms around us, picking us up, and saying, you don't got the power to do this, but I do. He gets in there. He gets dirty. That's the incarnational way that Jesus trans... Some of you know that, right? That's what you love about Jesus. He didn't just throw you a nice theology book. He gave you himself. Gives you himself. Because Jesus brought gracious truth and it was given through relationship. How many stories do we have in the scripture of Jesus? He could, I mean, he's God, right? He saw a blind person. He could have thrown him some Jesus juice, right? He could have said, you know, I've I got to keep moving here, but I'm son of God, so whoom, get some healing on you, right? And just keep walking. He's like, oh, I know you're bleeding, lady, but you've been waiting a lot of years already. You're good. I need to really get, and whoo, here's some Jesus juice for you. Get healed, right? I, I, oh, lame beggar, sorry, I've I got to keep moving here, so whoom, you be healed. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He stops. He stops. He gets into their lives. He talks with them. He hears their stories. He embraces them. I love one of the images of Scripture that just burns in my psyche is this idea where it always says, Jesus saw. Let's be real. What do a lot of people do on the street when you encounter a street person? You don't look. You don't make contact. Because if you make contact, you're indebted. you got to do something, right? you got to give something. What do we do? We don't look. If someone wants to get into the highway, get on 95, on the on-ramp, what do you do? You don't make eye contact because once you make eye contact, there's some humanity that's connected there, right? You don't look. Like some, some suburban moms get stone-cold gangster, right, when they're on the highway. They're driving, they're like, they like refuse to look. I'm like, come on, let me in. If you make eye contact, if you establish humanity, you, you have to. Jesus made eye contact. He made physical bodily contact. He rubbed his eyes on, he rubbed his hands on their eyes. He touched their lame parts. Jesus' truth was brought, and he brought the truth, but it was brought through relationship. It was brought through real contact. And in the same way, if you and I, if we desire to live in truth, we need to live it out together with others. Amen? Our truth is not meant to be these theological concepts we throw back and forth across Facebook and let, us, let each other know, Here, here's what God said today, and kind of get blessed by that. It's meant to get into one another's lives, and you don't just talk about these truths, but you live it out with one another. You embrace one another with it. You invite people into the hospitality of those words. We need to live it out together with others. I love the passage from Ephesians chapter 4, verse, starting verse 15, it says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Because again, I'm, my, my brain's twisted, so just give me grace, but I just think it would be much more effective if Jesus just kept us in each of our houses 
Because when we get out, we just mess each other up, right? Like, just kept us in each of our houses and just gave us intentional personal discipleship. Like, gave us a 12-week steps and just got us through that. And here's everything you need to learn to make it into glory one day. Here's what it means to be a good person. But don't go to anyone else because you're going to mess it up. You stay to yourself and I'm going to give you everything. I think it would just be much more efficient that way. But what does he do? How does he say we're transformed? How does he say we're built up into the fullness of the body as Christ? He's saying by being with one another. By speaking the truth and love to one another. By getting into the messiness of one another. Because if you've got to speak the truth and love, that means someone's spe- living in untruth. That's what speaking the truth and love. Someone's living in some untruth. So God has given you the responsibility to speak with grace into their lives. Speaking the truth and love. And I'm sure you guys, in, in your transformation, you've experienced different aspects of that, right? People speak into your life because if you've grown, I'm going to assume you've had people who loved you. And I remember, I know I look like some spiritual giant up here, and you're like, man, did he just come out of the womb, like, preaching Jesus? And man, there's like a glow about him. I don't think it's sweat. It's like, I know it's easy to understand. I'm like, but man, I used to be pretty far away from God. And even when God called me into ministry, um, I had a lot of really, really rough edges about me. And, and I remember as I was starting to learn how to be a pastor, um, I, I did some really messed up things because I didn't know any better. I was dumb, right? I, I just lived the same way I did. And I just attached Jesus onto it. But I, like, I, was, you know, I would say really inappropriate things. I would do really inappropriate things. I probably would dress inappropriate. I mean, I just did things inappropriately. And I remember once there was a, a I would say a well-meaning person to the church that I didn't really know well, but called me to the side. And he like went over a list of all the ways that I wasn't really doing what I should be doing. And say, you need to change this if you're going to be a pastor. I was like, okay, that's some good information. That's some truth there. Wow, I'm convicted. But then I had another man, a mentor of mine, who took me aside and he addressed and said, hey, I've been noticing, here's a whole list of things you really need to grow in because you're, you're hurting some people right now. But I want you to grow in this. I got to tell you, though, because I love you. And if I look back at those two instances, I realize they were saying pretty much the same thing. But you know what is stuck in me is transformative? It's the person who spoke that truth in love. Because we can throw truth bombs, but when there's not relationship to bring grace into those truth, I, I don't know if that's the way that truth is meant. And I, I'm not saying that sometimes truth just needs to go out, right? For sometimes grace is there or not, but sometimes truth needs to go. Prophets need to speak truth, and there's some grace. But I'm talking in the context of relational life. We need to be people who speak truth with one another. We need to care for one, each, each one another so much because that's the responsibility God's given us. And, and maybe some of you don't want that responsibility. Tough noogies, that's what the church is. God's given you one another to care for each other. And part of that is we bring truth because who else is going to bring truth into our life? But we do it with grace because we know who Jesus is. So a couple of action steps, a couple of action steps. One, I think one practical step is we need to fight for our time in the Word. We need to fight for your time in the Word. And I, I realize I'm speaking more to some of you who have no problem learning together in community. You're all about community, but when it comes to your personal time, you're like, oh, yeah, a little lacking, right? Um, I think this also requires, if we're going to live out truth and love in communities and have gracious truth, we also need to be walking in a lifestyle of being in the Word. 
And just as I've been praying about our church, and I know a lot of us might be struggling in different ways, um, and it just this memory came. I, I, I know I'm out of shape to do it now, but I ran a marathon last fall, first time I ever did it. I am not built to run a marathon, so it's, I was totally new to me, including how you eat. Because uh, I've been training myself. I'm not supposed to eat that much, and I need to cut out different foods because, again, I don't know how far you are from me. I'm, I can be a little chubby, right? So I need to cut out certain foods and be careful of my caloric intake. So what I did is I start running these miles preparing for a marathon. I'm getting up into like 15, 16 miles, and what I realized is I almost passed out one day. Like I'm out in the middle of, I think, Drew Park, and I almost passed out, and I got all woozy, and I was wondering what's going on. And then I talked to a, a smarter friend in the medical field. He's like, well, how much are you eating right now? And I described, he's like, you moron. You know, you're going to die like that. Because you need to, you've increased your pace. You've increased your energy outtake. You're eating still like you need to lose weight right now. No wonder you feel like you're going to pass out. And I need to increase what I was taking in. And again, it's not a perfect illustration here. But I think as I think about a lot of us here in the church, I think we're malnourished. I really think we're malnourished. Because God has called you to do some pretty astounding things in your life. I think God has called you to love people, whether in the church or in your neighborhoods. God has called you to take on some special projects to really um, love your city. God has called you to be excellent in your workplace and to be a shining as a light. Some of you to be students and to give all glory to God as you do that. God has called us to be um, leading your families with excellence as you follow Christ and all these things. That's a high calling. But what I observe in myself, I'm not just talking about, I'm, I'm looking at myself. And what, sometimes we have these great things God has called us to do, and we're just not being nourished the way we need to do those things. Like we're trying to live this high pace of life, trying to live this high pace of discipleship, and we're still eating like we're a baby Christian. We take like one verse that someone posts on Facebook in the morning. We're like, oh, my devotion for the day. It's like eating a Snickers bar. And I know Snickers pump their like whole hangry thing. And like, it's not energy. That's not going to sustain you. We need to eat. And God's given us the word of God, the bread of life to feed from. So some of us, God has called you to obey him in a great life. I guess you have an option. You can just drop it all. I would urge you to continue to run that race, but get nourished in the way you need to. And you can get nourished in a lot of ways, but I think for some of us, we need to come back to the main nourishment God's given, which is his word, to take time to, to immerse in it. And maybe it's a passionate thing for me, just the Bible, because, you know, every so often I have people ask me, what's been like the fundamental things that have kind of got you to where you are now? And God willing, I'm nowhere near finished. I want to run some more in my life, but God, people are like, well, how, how have you gotten to your walk with God at this point? And there's a lot of different factors. But honestly, I remember back probably in my early 20s or so, I was in a pretty um, horrible place in my life, mid-20s actually, uh, far from God. Uh, I was coming out of backgrounds where I just had no self-control, so I was in a lot of bad habits, a lot of bad relationships, deeply misogynistic, uh, deeply uh, just reckless in a lot of things I was doing, um, had problems with just across the board. And God in his mercy just started to stop me. He said, okay, you need some change here, and I'm going to let you have some trouble to get your attention, and it was good mercy. But then God brought me back, and I started to go to church, and I realized, okay, uh, things are not changing because I'm still trying to do, tr I'm trying to be good, but I don't really know how to be. And someone said, hey, just start reading the Bible. I was like, really? Yeah, just start reading the Bible. 
And I was scared to read the Bible because what I thought was this whole book is going to remind me how jacked up I am. It's going to give me all these moral codes that I can't live by. It's going to set, up, set me up for more failure because that's how I always viewed what Christianity was. Just a lot of uh, guilt, a lot of shame. That's what I thought Christianity was, right? But I started reading this Bible, and it was amazing how God, through his spirit, started to open up. Because all I could see, whereas before I thought it was a whole list of moral things that I needed to obey to be a good Christian... I started to see story after story, narrative after description of a jacked up people, of a people who God loved fully like no one would ever been loved and just shown favor and given everything that they would need to succeed in life. And what they do, they just continually reject it, continue to walk away from God, continue to rebel, continue to be just jerks and, and follow every other God and cheat on their God, cheat on their lover. But what did God do? Just continue to give them grace, continue to give them mercy, continue to forgive them. Just give them hope after hope after hope to people who were rebellious over and over and over again, ultimately to the point where he sent the Savior who would take upon their sin, live the life they were supposed to live but that they never could, and go on this thing called a cross and take upon their death and take upon their sin. And guys, reading through the Bible in that way, I started to see that through every page in this book. I, and I'm not saying these things to like try to say, well, be like me because I'm a super Christian. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying how the word of God has an effect in my life. There was about a one-year period where pretty much all I did in my spare time was read the Bible. I had this ugly, nasty, pea-green Bible. Like, I think it was gifted to me by, like, some church or something, because they, you know, just kids go through and they give it. I was like, they must have found, like, discount aisle for this, right? It's a nasty-looking Bible. But I picked it up, started reading it, and just got immersed in that thing. I still have it saved. I can't use it because it's like the binding's all broke because there's, like, pages falling out all over. But I opened that thing... Like pages that are like all wrinkled up because of just crying over the word of God. Just amazed by the grace of God that he wants to give to me a rebellious, uh, sin-laden man. And all he does is, knowing my sin, all he does is offer me forgiveness. All he does is welcome me back into family. Continually, and I would read these stories and just soak my Bible. There's coffee stains all over because I would read it late in the night and be knocking over coffee and just staining this whole thing because I couldn't get enough. And again, I'm not saying that to say that's the answer and that's the solution. It's not a mathematical formula. But there was something God did in immersing in the word of God and saying, I can't get enough. Just like anything we desire, not being able to get enough, and that God did speak through those things. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about it. Biblical knowledge, maturity doesn't just spring up. we got to be nourished in these things. I want to invite you. God has given us what to feed on and take advantage of it in whatever way that would look. So first action step, fight for your time in the Word. Second action step, fight for your time in community. Fight for your time in community. And, I mean, we all know the narrative. We are all busy. We, we say that all the time, right? Oh, we're all busy. Of course we are, right? But that's why I say fight. Sometimes we're a little too passive when it comes to knowing what God wants to do in our life. we got to fight for some things, and we need to fight for our time in community. And last week, if you were not here, heck, man, you missed a great Sunday because we had some stories here, people sharing their lives, pouring out some honest stuff. It was beautiful. You can find it online. I loved last week. They were inspiring to me. But I'm also going to suggest it's probably not the norm for most of us. We're probably not going to have like that experience every week or every day even for you and for others. But that's why we need things like groups in our church, community groups, or other forms of community, right? It doesn't have to be that. But in our church, we have these things called community groups where we need to go in. 
and be cross-cultural. Even be with some people who might be different than you. Learn the Bible from people who might think from a different cultural lens than you do, and I think that's a real healthy thing. And have God speak in that. Have him speak into our lives. We need a place where we will speak truth to one another, but we're also going to receive truth. Because as, as much as we love this, and as much as sometimes we have people come up and share testimonies and stories, that's not going to happen for all of us most of the time. There's, probably most of you will not be able to get up in front of a group like this and share real areas that, that you need healing in or that God is working in your life. But you need a smaller group of people, and it's not going to happen automatically. That's why it takes time to walk with some people, build some trust up, to be in a place where grace is plentifully shared. So you need to know that's, our, that's, that's really our group of, our goal of community groups. I mean, I hope we have good study, but honestly, more than that, it's a place for you to get together where you start to break down some walls that would normally be there so that grace can be shared, truth can be given and received. So as we bring this to a close here, convicting truth usually doesn't feel too good. I don't know if any of you or me, I know, receive convicting truth. It rarely feels too good. It's kind of like surgery. But we need surgery for life, right? Getting cut in doesn't help or it doesn't feel fun, but we need it sometimes to live. In the same way, we need convicting truth. And for some of us here, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put it out there. Probably the most convicting truth, if you're not there, is you have to recognize what we believe in our church. Part of truth is that apart from Jesus, there's condemnation. Apart from Jesus, there's the wrath of God. That's for every single person. That's why the good news is so good, because God has given us a way to not have to live in condemnation and eternal punishment and the wrath of God for our sin, for our rebellion. And that hurts, because who wants to be told that your life is not what it's supposed to be? But ultimately, that's what the Christian gospel is, that we have fallen away from what God intended us to be. Whether in our personal morals, whether in our relationships, whether in our sexuality, whether in our morality, whatever it might be, we've fallen away from what God designed us to be. And that leads to eternal condemnation. But praise God, he has given us hope and truth through Jesus Christ. And I want to invite all of us, turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. Yeah, it's convicting. Yeah, pride doesn't feel good because you have to admit that there's something wrong. But the right is so right to trust in Jesus. Because the cross, the cross where Jesus died, if you're new to this thing, it can be easy to think of the cross as kind of where Jesus was sacrificial and he kind of um, died a martyr's death. And, and maybe that's a part of it. But what we believe from the scriptures happened on the cross is the cross is where you had truth and you had grace and they met and they collided on this thing called a cross. So you had the truth because some people want to tell you, you know what, God's all about you not taking your stuff too seriously. He loves everyone. It doesn't matter anymore. Don't be like those guilt people, Christians, and trying to make you feel bad. God wants you to feel good. Actually, the scriptures never deny that God wants us to be a certain way like we looked at last week. He calls us to be holy. He actually calls us to be perfect. He says we're supposed to be without sin. There's truth fully. But there's also grace. Because Jesus, what he did was he took the penalty upon himself for us now fully obeying God. And what he did when he died on the cross is he gave us away, as rebellious as we might have been, grace to be forgiven by God, to be made right with God. That's why we love Jesus so much. Because he took our place 
he brought together truth, unwavering truth and grace, loving, merciful grace, and brought them together when he died on the cross for us. And I want to invite you to receive that. Because it might sound like we're talking about trying to make yourself feel, but that's not what it is. This is not up on the screen, but John 8, 32. It says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's what this is about, freedom. The truth is about setting us free. And you often get set free when you first bring some of your stuff and let God forgive you. So can you stand with me? And I ask you to bow your head for a moment. And we're going to sing and we're going to come up to the table and receive communion. And I want to ask you to embrace the truth of God. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make it very uh, real right now. Are you living some areas of your life that are apart from God? And you, you've put on a really good mask because you don't have people who know your soul. If that's you, can I invite you to the freedom that Jesus promises, that he knows you're not getting anything over on him. He knows, yet he wants to offer you his grace. He died on the cross so you could have grace. So are you struggling with different things? Bring that to Jesus right now. Receive his love. Receive his grace. So I want to invite you to pray, and as you pray, you can come up and receive communion. Remember the sacrifice that Jesus made so we could be made right with God. Take a piece of the wafer. Dip it in the cup right here at the table. Remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And as you pray, here's my prayer for our church. And as I've been praying, preparing this message, here, this has been my prayer for our church, that this gracious truth will mark our relationships with each other. We will be the most truthful people with one another, but we will also be the most gracious and compassionate people with one another. But that will never stop at these doors. That will go out into our world where people think that Christians are the most ungracious most hypocritical. May we go forth in a revolution of showing people who Jesus is, full of truth, yet full of grace. That's my prayer. Let me pray. Lord, help us. Help us in this place, God. And I pray, I'm, I'm, I think some of us here, Lord, even as we're in church regularly, we have been living a lie. We've been living and putting on the airs. We've been putting on what we think we should look like. But we have not been fully truthful. But help us to recognize, Lord, that freedom is not found the better we cover ourselves up. Freedom is not found in the better that we pretend that we've got it all together. Freedom is found when we bring our stuff, including our sin, and we say we need Jesus. So help us to do that in this place. Lord, Holy Spirit, bring freedom in this place. Thank you for your word, Lord, that you have left, not left us to ourselves. Heal us in this place, God. And Lord, I pray for some in this room, I think, have been struggling with habitual sin for a long time. Some with anger issues, some with addictions, some with secret proclivities. Lord, would you bring us into the light, into freedom, not to judge us, but to free us. Because we realize that Jesus was already judged on the cross so that we wouldn't have to be. And help us to receive your grace that you want to pour out freely here. So help us to run into your arms today as we sing, as we receive the Lord's Supper, as we care about one another, as you care about us. So let's continue to pray. Maybe before you come up, maybe some of you just need to pray for a little bit and let God speak to you right where you're at.